He's been referred to in the media as the Prince of Palmerstown, a one-time heir to a vast fortune. He's entertained top models, he's collection of llama, drove luxurious cars. It's been, I suppose, a spectacular fall from grace for him. The judge was warning others, don't get involved in this because you will go in down, you will go into custody, you know. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Jim Mansfield Jr. was dealt his fate this week when judges at the Special Criminal Court handed him down a two-year sentence, suspending six months in a crushing blow for the former millionaire heir of Ireland's once wealthiest family. Despite submissions for leniency from his legal team, who insisted he was in the lower range of intellectual ability, that he was a carer to his elderly mother, and that he was someone who would find it difficult to be incarcerated, Mansfield will now have to serve his time, just like any other common criminal. So what was it like for the Celtic Tiger playboy to find himself in the dock? And how did his tight-knit socialite family deal with one of their own on trial? Today, I'm talking with courts reporter Alison O'Reardon, who covered the lengthy trial, and who tells me how Mansfield remained confident to the end that he would walk free. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Alison, I thought one of the pieces of evidence that stuck stuck out for me in the court um, during Martin Byrne's evidence was that he mentioned that he was been asked about working for the Mansfield family. And of course, he's he was employed by the father way back in 2004, 2005. So he'd worked for them for a long time. But he referred to it like when you're working for Mansfield, you were working for the family, essentially, that it was a family. And in court this week, as Jim Mansfield Jr. was being sentenced, we really did see how that family stuck together and all the way through the trial. Yes, Nicola, you could see how tightly connected they were during yesterday's sentence hearing. There was a large crowd in court to support him. Everyone from his wife, his ex-wife, Donna Cosgrove, who he separated from, she was there and she had sat in court every day during the trial to support her former partner. Then his two adult children, who would have frequented the trial nearly every day, his son Samuel, who's 27, and his mm. daughter Ingrid, 26. And even his secretary, Sally Ann Brown, who had previously got dispensation to stay in the courtroom when members of the public were excluded. She was even there yesterday, as was his brothers, Tony and PJ, and their partners. So, yeah, it was they really rallied round to support him in court uh, for yesterday's hearing. Yeah. And Sally Ann Brown, when she got that dispensation, the reason for the dispensation was not actually because of COVID numbers. It was because Martin Byrne was giving evidence. And Martin Byrne is now in the witness protection programme, the former security guard, due to the fact he was kidnapped at a point in 2015 when things went chaotically wrong out in in the Mansfield business. And uh, he was picked up by Desi O'Hare and Wacker Duffy and held captive at his home. But... The judge actually said that, you know, that he didn't want basically members of the public to come in and see this man's face. This man is in protection for a reason. And, you know, that's kind of usual, is it, when you have protected witnesses? 
Yeah, normally the public would be excluded um, when you would have someone from the Witness Protection Programme in. Martin Byrne, now turned state witness, he was the principal witness in the case, a former employee at the Mansfield Group, and he'd worked for James Mansfield Senior as the security expert for almost 20 years. And as it stands now, Martin Byrne and his wife and son are in the Witness Protection Programme. And the reason that programme exists, it's to protect those with a threat against their lives. And it's designed to provide security and financial assistance to integrate its members into new life and yeah we would have seen that in court mm. he would have been flanked by two security men and um, yeah just to protect him yeah so anyway she she's a former secretary or is a secretary or whatever you'd say of Mansfield so she was allowed in um, apart from the family gathering there in court to support Mansfield um, we also were given a kind of a picture of a real family man during the sentence hearing when his defence put forward, they're sort of, um, you know, they put forward to the to the three judges their their submissions that he shouldn't really be getting a custodial sentence was the point of of them, um, and I think they 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 sort of painted him as as and the family as a very tight unit. Yeah, his defence counsel, Bernard Condon, he really played up his involvement in the community of Sagart in West Dublin and how Mansfield was well regarded by the locals and that people from the area spoke very highly of him. At one point, uh, Mr Condon even said the locals described him as a jolly kind of personality with a childlike innocent and also that he was a very personable man. The court heard how like his hotel, Finstown House Hotel, which is now run by Mansfield's son, employs over 100 people. People. So deeply rooted in the community, yes. Mm. Then he was also painted as a family man with the caring disposition. It, yeah, we heard how he resides with a 78-year-old mother who requires support and assistance at the family mansion to Sagard House in Sagard and he had been her carer as she didn't have a full-time one. Um, the court, we also heard how he married his wife at 27 years of age and despite being separated from her, they're still amicable, they're in contact, they have two adult children who are very supportive. We even heard that Mansfield is now a granddad. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they, look, they was, it was kind of slightly unusual, I thought, when um, the, these submissions were, were coming going into the court and obviously there was testimonials given. Now, we don't know who made those testimonials, but there was reference that they were kind of local people who knew him. And there was a psycho- psychological report um, into his intelligence basically and you know how well equipped he was he was described as an early school leaver with some some uh, intellectual difficulties yeah we heard a bit as the senior counsel put us his unorthodox education and his difficulties with dyslexia he left school at an early age he didn't continue to do his state examinations he was enrolled in secondary school we were told he seldom attended and he instead he assisted his father in the business um he was even ref- that we even heard that he referred to himself as an early school dropout and um it was also submitted that a psychologist had set out Mansfield's intellectual ability, which placed him in the lower range in terms of scores with difficulties in day-to-day life. Uh, Mr. Connor said this was not to deprecate Mansfield, but said the report stated that he was operating at a mild intellectual disability range or borderline range. So, yeah, the defence seemed to place great emphasis on his reduced intellectual abilities, which 
it's a bit hard to square that this person who's been involved in multi-million euro deals, someone who's been negotiating with banks and other businessmen would have these intellectual um, faults. Mm. I mean, he said, I think he had language, he had language difficulties in that he would have had difficulties sort of with these kind of conversations. But funny, he's brought this up before. I remember there was civil proceedings to do with a bank loan that he was involved with, a mortgage of some sort. And it was mentioned in court at that point that he was dyslexic and couldn't understand the um, the papers he was reading or the papers he'd signed. So he's kind of, you know, leaned towards this when the pressure's on. Yeah, I suppose at one point in the trial when Martin Byrne was given evidence, uh, Mansfield's former security guard, he had told the judges that a note handed to one of his kidnappers couldn't have been written by Mansfield as he didn't write. And Mr Condon asked the witness, was he having a dig at his client, which Mr Byrne obviously denied. Yeah, I actually thought he was quite taken aback that time when he was asked, was he having a dig? He was like, no, he just... You know, you wouldn't be able to write like that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, no, an interesting insight and obviously all from, you know, his own and, and to his own. I mean, look, these things are said to the court because, uh, you know, a defence legal team is employed for a reason and that is to try and, you know, put your case forward as best as possible. He pleaded not guilty, which is why this trial went on. Um, and then when it comes to sentencing, you're trying to put a case just, to, you know, as much as possible to reduce any sentence that, that a judge would be handing down. Um, so that's that that all came out there. Now, you mentioned there that it was hard to square this sort of um, uh, this individual, this family man, this jolly, kind person with childlike innocence with the person we heard about in court. Now, this trial is going on and on and on. I think we've got old while this trial has been going on. It all started a long time ago and has been adjourned time and again. Yeah, the trial was originally only supposed to last three weeks and that was back in 2020, but there was months of delays and numerous lengthy adjournments due to complications with certain witnesses arising out of COVID, then newly disclosed CCTV evidence, which caused another seven month adjournment, and then finding available dates to suit all parties. So it resulted in it commencing in October 2020, and then judgment just being returned on January 17th last. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, over the space of two years, really. Yeah. There was something mentioned as well, I think, about uh, the golfer, Christy O'Connor. Yeah, the court heard that Mansfield had endangered himself, as Mr Condon put it, by rescuing golfer Christy O'Connor Jr. from a helicopter crash in or around to Sagard House. And Mansfield had been involved in this rescue. Um, the lawyer then added on to this that Mansfield, his client, was a person who went out of his way to assist Christy O'Connor Jr., who was a man in severe difficulty at the time of the crash. And this spoke to his concern for others. He broke windows or something to get the man out, but maybe we'll, uh, that's for another day, that story. They did hand in a, a piece from the Irish Independent dating back 20 or more years, I think, when this incident happened. So I'll go into the archives and try and find that out. Um so I suppose it's important to have a look at what this trial was all about. And it was really complex. I mean, I recall a number of days at lunchtime and after the court having to have little debates with you about what had actually happened, what was actually being said. You know what I mean? Even as journalists, we were kind of finding it 
difficult enough to follow what was going on because it was a very complex story that emerged. And obviously Mansfield was charged first with perverting the course of justice and secondly with the kidnap. Um, He denied both of those. The kidnap occurred in in June of 2015 when Martin Byrne was brought to meet with Desi O'Hare and Wacker Duffy at Keatings Park, a business premises owned by the Mansfields. And there he was taken by them and bundled into a car, brought back to Tassagart House, the family home of the Mansfields, where he lived in in an outhouse and he was assaulted. Um, But in the run up to this, I think we heard evidence that was showing a very chaotic scene in in the world of Mansfield, where there was dissident Republicans coming in and out of the home, where there was some of them, Martin Burns suggested in his in his um, in his evidence were were on the payroll. They were being paid to protect Mansfield. Others he was he was suggesting or claiming in court were being brought in to strong arm back some of the assets. So it was a complex situation, but um, you know, at the heart of it, I suppose, really was that the Mansfield had lost their wealth and they wanted some of it back. Yeah, the Mansfield Group, they'd gone into some financial difficulties around the time of the last recession in 2011 and a number of properties had been held by the group were going into receivership. And Martin Byrne, he continued to work for the receiver, Martin Ferris, um, and other members of the Mansfield family. And Martin Byrne, his role in all this pretty much was, uh, he was asked, he said, to assist Mansfield to try and resolve the dispute and try to gain back control of the properties. And all these, this centred around the events in or around June 9, 2015, when Martin Byrne, he went to the home of Mansfield on the morning of June 9th, where he met him, and they both travelled to a warehouse at Keatings Park. Mansfield, he never disputed going to Keatings Park with Martin Byrne that morning, but what he did dispute that is what was alleged to have happened there on his arrival. So on arrival at Keatings Park, Martin Byrne said he was accompanied by Mansfield into an office where he was immediately confronted by Desi O'Hare and Declan Duffy. And it was alleged that one of the two men turned to Mansfield at one point and said, your work is done here. And Mansfield then left the room. So Martin Byrne gave evidence that there was a heated conversation between himself, O'Hare and Duffy, during which it was expressed to him that he was to immediately vacate the premises at the towers where he and his family had been permitted to live. Uh, Martin Byrne, he told them he was willing to leave. He could be given another 24 hours. But then he was set upon by another five men who were lying in wait for him down the stairs. And then those seven men restrained Martin Byrne and didn't allow him to leave and put him into the back of the car and drove to the towers. So it was a state case that Martin Byrne, his wife and son were falsely imprisoned by these group of men and they were effectively delivered up by Mansfield into the arms of these men who falsely imprisoned him, his wife and his son. And then ultimately in what I suppose appeared to be a stroke of good fortune, a member of Vanguardist Giacona was in the area and Martin Byrne, who's been held against his will, um, alerted them and Gardy became aware of what was going on. Yeah, he went to the gate, I think, when the car came up. The others permitted him to go down to get rid of the guards, but he was able to go down and kind of mouth to them that, you know, Desi O'Hare is here, he probably has a gun. And, you know, he did. He, I think probably his security training came in there because another person might have panicked in that situation, but definitely he seemed to remain calm and get the message across 
and also to keep the members of the guard safe because he was saying to them there could be weapons here like you know he wasn't sending them in to without them knowing what 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 awaited them there um we saw martin burn and the pressure a witness will come under in court um you know it's okay when a witness is giving evidence for the state because they're being gently led through what they have to say but then obviously it's the defense job to put them under rigorous cross-examination and my god did he go under rigorous cross-examination i think he was five days yeah he spent five grueling days under cross-examination by the defense senior counsel bernard condon who put to him on a number of occasions that he was lying in his evidence he was a fantasist which martin byrne denied he, the council also accused him of being someone who likes to make himself look important, likes a bit of grandiosity. He again refuted this. And uh, Martin Burney also denied that he was making it up as he went along. Mr Condon said he couldn't keep his story straight for more than three minutes and was putting people in and out of meetings willy nilly which Martin Byrne um, vigorously denied. At one point, Mr Condon called his answers to his questions pretty slippery and Mr Byrne quipped back. It was a pretty slippery time. Yeah, Condon kind of did his all. And if you were Mansfield, you would have been really glad to have him there fighting your corner. But I think Martin Byrne proved himself as a witness then as well under the, in those five days. And his security training probably came into that. He was able to not get aggressive, not get worked up. He was able to sit and kind of take a lot of that. What many people would think was sort of insulting comments. And he was able to take them and bat them off. Yeah, he was certainly at ease and a very assured witness who... um, wasn't scared off by what the defence counsel was putting to him, you know. Um, but that that was the the what the trial was all about. Now, Mansfield was acquitted. He was found not guilty of the kidnap charge, but found guilty of this um, attempt to pervert the course of justice, which involved the the meeting he'd had earlier in the day with Martin Byrne at Finstown House, and he seems to have approached Patrick Byrne. Martin Byrne's brother, who was working there to get rid of that CCTV. Now, that was described in the sentence hearing as a cack handed attempt by the judge to destroy that. Um, it didn't work, basically, because Patrick Byrne became suspicious and held on to a copy of it, uh, of the CCTV. But nonetheless, I think the judges saw that as a direct attempt by Mansfield. They said that Mansfield would have known that this um, incident was going to lead to a major criminal investigation and that he was trying to distance himself from it by getting the, the CCTV destroyed. Yeah, Patrick Byrne, he also gave evidence during the trial and he said that Mansfield had told him to destroy a hard drive upon which CCTV footage was captured during the course of that day and delivering judgment uh, at the non-jury court last month Presiding Judge, Mr Justice Alex Owens, he said that the evidence had established to the requisite standard of proof that Mansfield was prepared to hinder an investigation into very serious criminal activities by instructing Patrick Byrne to destroy a CCTV hard drive holding footage of himself and Martin Byrne leaving Finstown House in the morning of June 9th, 2015. He also said that this direction was given by Mansfield to Patrick Byrne with intent 
to prefer the course of justice. And this was an effort to destroy CCTV footage, which was a potential value in any guard investigation or prosecution relating to the kidnapping of Martin Byrne. Mansfield effectively wanted to suppress this footage because it connected him to the events of June 9th. And then the court further accepted that Mansfield had made this cack-handed request to Patrick Byrne to destroy the footage and interfere with his prosecution in furtherance of his own interest. Now, when the verdict was was read out in, in January, there was certainly some shock in the Mansfield camp. Yeah, I, I was in court and you could hear the gasps coming from the back of the courtroom from the family. I don't believe they thought he was ever going to go to prison. And I think Mansfield himself was pretty uh, taken aback, so much so that he was put into custody because he'd been found guilty on the second count that day. And he hadn't even brought a bag with changes of clothes to go to prison with. So that was, I suppose, his arrogance, his cockiness, his confidence that he wasn't going to go down or be found guilty on any of the counts. Um, a family member could ha- was heard approaching the prison guards asking what type of clothes uh, will we bring for later? And they were told a pair of jeans and a jumper. And that person walked away holding uh, Mansfield's tie. The prison guards had taken it off him and um, obviously he wasn't going to be bringing that to prison and uh, just for precaution um, reasons. And the person was seen leaving the court holding the tie. Mm. Such an image and such a fall. Um, And that was obviously on, 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 you know, on being found guilty, he was being placed into custody. He did look for bail and didn't get it. Um, so that's, I suppose, the last three weeks would have got him somewhat used to prison, although he would have remained in a remand prison. I thought on the day of sentencing, that same sense of disbelief existed there, that that sense of there was, you know, as the sentence hearing began and there was talk of, um, you know, you can serve sentences in different ways. People can can be given hours of community service, which means they'll work out in the community in, in charities or whatever. And that's obviously a preferable option for anyone, especially somebody not used to prison. Some criminals, look, and you cover the special criminal court and other courts all the time. And you know, they go to jail with their hands tied behind their back. Literally, it doesn't mean anything to them. They're quite comfortable. They're going into a a place where they have friends, where they often have relatives and where they're just used to. Um, for Mansfield, that was different. And I thought there was a certain sense of shock again when he was actually sentenced to a prison term as opposed to hours of community service. Yeah, I suppose looking at him yesterday in court, he definitely lost weight in those three weeks. But he was still smiling down at his family. Like during the trial, he would always have been very relaxed and chatty in the courtroom. There was certainly no hint of any shame or embarrassment. He never looked like a man under pressure or stress. All, at all times, he really came across as cocky and confident. He had a smile for everyone. He was working the courtroom, going up and down from the doctor's family, engaging in chats. And I suppose the same can be said about yesterday from the point of view that he did still look relaxed and at ease. Yes, we're used to seeing him in the dapper tailored shirts, the cr- suits, the crisp white shirts, silk ties. And yesterday he was still in 
a lovely navy suit and tie and shirt. And um, he gave his family a thumbs up and waved down to him as he was led away by the prison guards. I don't know now if that was for the benefit of the media Mm. or what, but he certainly didn't look like a troubled man. And I suppose this is certainly a change of circumstances for the Special Criminal Court. It's not the usual kind of defendant we expect to see there. It's more frequented by hitmen, drug dealers, mob bosses, certainly not the son of a former billionaire, hotelier and property magnate. He's been referred to in the media as the Prince of Palmerstown, a one-time heir to a vast fortune. He's entertained top models, he's a collection of llama, drove luxurious cars. It's been, I suppose, a spectacular fall from Mm. grace for him. A very privileged lifestyle and to see him standing there getting sentenced in relation to this crime was quite amazing. I thought he got very flustered. He didn't kind of know what to do. I thought he was trying to save face by smiling at at the family members. At one point, there was a mix up as documents were being handed up to the judge and the judge kind of laughed and the family sort of laughed a little bit too much along with the judge. You know, sometimes you see that it's it's a tense situation and and anything can can kind of break that tension. But I was kind of thinking that can go either way. You know, sometimes it's only the judge who's allowed to laugh. Um, But look, people aren't used to the court proceedings and he clearly wasn't. And actually, as he sort of blustered at the end um, and and didn't know whether to approach the bench or to stay in the dock, the judge kind of suggested to his legal team that they might need to explain to him what to do because he obviously wasn't sort of used to it. But um, look, um, no doubt there will be... um, submissions or attempts to appeal this from his side. Certainly his legal team have been worked very hard all the way along on this. And, um, you know, maybe there'll be another day's outing for him. But in the meantime, he is doing porridge with the rest of the ordinaries that we, we see going in and out of courts. Yeah, the judge pointed out that a sentence of community service or a fine Um, wasn't appropriate here as there was a strong public interest in ensuring that those who might be minded to frustrate the prosecution of culprits should not take it upon themselves to destroy potential evidence. So the judge was warning others, don't get involved in this because you will go down, you will go into custody, you know. Yeah. Well, Alison O'Reardon, thank you very much. No problem, Nicola, thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.